today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Podcast. Tell your friends, hope you enjoy the show. Coming up on today's, drinking and driving laws could allow police to demand breath samples in bars, restaurants, even in your home. Also, another pipeline that can't get built. What is the Prime Minister doing about it? And shut down talks in the United States around the government have shut down. It's all coming up on today's podcast. Hope you enjoy the show. We started this yesterday with uh, the revised uh, drinking and driving laws in um, in Canada, and, and this was introduced by the uh, federal government shortly after the legalization, legalization of cannabis. Uh, some say that uh, these two are related in the sense that uh, this is a bit of a, a distraction. A lot of people unhappy about the legalization of cannabis, so you alter that by... You know, going to the other side and say, well, we're going to increase uh, the penalties for uh, drinking and driving and such. Uh, then, of course, Sean O'Shea told us the story of art in which uh, this man, uh, Mississauga Streetsville area, uh, taking his empties back after uh, Christmas holidays. He's got, uh, I guess, three cases and in, in, in some wine bottles and such and takes them back. A police officer notices this and pulls art over. Once he gets uh, off and, and away and Art's confused, doesn't know why he's, he's been pulled over. The officer says, um, I saw you taking in this large amount of empties, so uh, I'm going to give you a breathalyzer test. Now, he doesn't have to tell Art that. He doesn't need, that that's irrelevant anyway, whether, you know, the, the, the policeman thought, well, he's got a lot of empties there. Maybe he's drunk, as if people who have more empties or are taking empties in are more likely to be impaired than people who just walk in and buy something. Uh, that being said, the excuse, the reasoning is irrelevant because now under these new laws, we don't need, uh, police don't need any reason to uh, give you a breathalyzer test. Uh, Sean O'Shea has continued on this, and as, as we, we realize, as we dig deeper into these uh, laws, that now... They can actually demand breath samples from patrons in bars, restaurants, and even in your own home. So you've could have, well, I'll let Sean explain all this. It, it's quite bizarre. And uh, again, uh, in our mad dash to make sure we do everything right and everything we can to get drunk drivers on off the road, uh, we've, we're missing the point here. We're missing the loss of civil rights. Sean O'Shea is with his consumer reporter, Global News. He's on the line now. Sean, thanks for taking the time. Much appreciated. Scott, thanks for having me on. How much, fe- how much feedback are you getting on this? <laughs> I haven't had as much feedback on a story in probably 18 months. Uh, people are very, very interested in the story, and from both sides. Uh, you know, there are people who say, if, you know, if I have to give up some civil rights in order for people to be taken off the road, or should be taken off the road, I'm happy to do it. Um, and I'm hearing from a lot of police officers and former police officers who believe this is all fear-mongering. And though the majority of people are saying, look, it's one thing to ask people to provide a a roadside sample. It's another thing uh, to give police the power to be able to go to a bar or knock on a door and demand a breath sample from somebody uh, up to two hours after they've been driving. And that's what we're getting at in the story that we published last night. All right. Before we get to that, how did we get to where we are now? Well, I think there's been outrage about the number of 
you know, drunk drivers on the roads and fatalities and for good reason. Look, nobody's saying that there shouldn't be uh, changes that would make it possible for fewer people to be on the road who shouldn't be on the road. Uh, and and that is a reality. I think you set up as well in the intro talking about um, cannabis use and, and all of that. So I think there is a view out there and it's it's a motherhood issue, right? That people don't want to see people driving drunk. None of us do. The question, though, becomes how much how many liberties uh, do you want to give up? How much power do you want to give to police that they didn't have before that will actually affect you in some other way? That's the point of concern here. Uh, federal government ensures us that this will stand up in court, but I've had lots of lawyers on that says that it's not. What are you hearing? I interviewed three very prominent criminal defense lawyers who almost specialize entirely on impaired driving two in Toronto, one in Vancouver yesterday. Uh, I certainly haven't heard from anybody who says that this is going to stand up in court. The problem is, uh, and they've all told this to me, is that you know you don't just snap your fingers and have the laws change. Uh, challenges take time. You have to go through the lower courts, through the courts of appeal, and to the Supreme Court of Canada. When there were changes in 2008, uh, one of the lawyers told me it took four years for some of those to be to be addressed through the through the Supreme Court. So it's not a matter of just fixing things. And if, imagine if you're the person uh, who gets arrested uh, unjustifiably, and you have now had your license suspended. You face a fine. You face ridicule from the people with whom you work or people around you. Do you want to be that person who is going through the situation? Uh, even though later down the road it's going to be addressed in an appeal? Probably not. Why would the federal government implement this if we're hearing such strong uh, uh, reaction from from the legal uh, world that this is not going to stand up? Uh, that's a really good question that I can't answer, except to say that the lawyers I talked to, the lawyers did you know, make submissions, the defense lawyers made submissions uh, to Parliament. Um, many feel that uh, the, the, the final product... Uh, didn't seem to reflect the suggestions that they were making. Um, but the government has an agenda uh, as they see it, and this is the result. Um, and the result is that police, uh, whether they use the powers or not, do have more powers, as you talked about with art and the roadside breath screening. Nobody needs a, an excuse anymore to ask and demand that you provide a breath sample. And then the possibility that they can also demand a breath sample from you up to two hours after you've been driving. And if you refuse to provide that, even if they knock at your door or if they go to a bar because they have a presumption that you may have been drunk driving, you better do it or you're going to find yourself in jail. So let, let's clarify this, Sean, uh, and, and so everybody knows. So initially, uh, I guess the, the great concern or what the big difference people noticed here was that uh, police now do not need a reason to uh, ask for a breathalyzer. They don't need any sort of reasonable uh, suspicion or uh, reason to believe you're, you, you're, uh, you're drinking or, or any of that. Now they can just randomly pull you over or, and, and, and ask for one. But talk a little bit more about this two-hour thing. So the two-hour thing is what gives lawyers um, the biggest concern. The way that they've presented it is the following. Uh, if somebody is presumed to be driving drunk, let's presume that you know they get a phone call, a 911 call that says uh, a person driving a particular car with a particular license plate is is driving erratically, and they track down that car to a drinking establishment or to your house. 
they can, up until two hours after uh, the person has been driving that vehicle, demand a roadside sample or a sample in that location from them. Let's say you're driving to the bar and you haven't had a drink. You go inside, but you're drinking inside the bar because that's what a lot of people do. And if they have a suspicion and they come inside the bar and they say, we demand a breath sample, you have to provide it. And you might be over the 80 milligrams at that point because you've just consumed three or four beers. And it becomes problematic, the lawyers say, because how do you prove that at the time you were driving that vehicle, you weren't intoxicated, you weren't over the limit. It becomes really difficult. Same thing at your home. And they raise the the real possibility, they say, that, that they're opening up to people doing malicious things, spouses, ex-spouses, calling on um, a husband or wife that they've had a very contentious divorce with and and reporting them uh, drunk driving. And then somebody goes to the house and they demand this sample. They're really concerned because it, it gives police, whether they use the rights or not, a lot of leeway to go after people two hours after they've been driving. How are other provinces reacting to this? Uh, I can't answer that question. I've only dealt with the province of Ontario and some of the police uh, officers here. Uh, no official statements from any of the, the police departments, really, other than, you know, in the conversations I've had with, with some, they're saying, look, uh, we had rights before. We would apply those rights uh, with discretion. We're going to do the same thing here. Uh, don't worry about it is, is effectively the message. But we know, and the, the lawyers I've spoken to say, that when you give police powers, police use the powers that they're given and why wouldn't they exactly and let's be clear let's be clear here the police aren't going to be doing anything that the government hasn't given them the right absolutely to do, and you know what a lot of the anger is directed toward the police and it's not the it's, it shouldn't be directed toward the police it should be directed towards government that's where the question should be on, on how this law moves forward yeah, I want to be clear about that. Uh, nobody in, in the reporting I've done, uh, we've not said that the police have done anything wrong no. or would be doing anything wrong by applying the laws that they've been given. Yep. The issue here, and most of the most of the acrimony here, is that the federal government has given a lot more leeway to police, a lot more rights to police to be able to do these kinds of things. That's what people are concerned about, and where does it end? You talked about discretion. Um, do you think from your viewers that discretion was used with art? Um, it's interesting. Um, most of the people who weighed in on that said it didn't seem reasonable that you would go to a beer store and ask for uh, a sample from somebody's returning empties. Peel Regional Police got back to me on that and they said, actually, we have in the past found that many times people who are returning bottles or are at a liquor store or buying product in the morning are actually intoxicated and then they've, they've made some successful arrests. So they justified and admitted that they had targeted that particular beer store because in the past it had paid some dividends. I think people, from my reading of the people who've gotten back to me, uh, Scott, on, on the stories, is that people feel that they want to be treated fairly um, and what is reasonable and what is fair. And they feel, I think, in a lot of cases that, you know, if you haven't found something that I've done wrong, why are you, why are you picking a fight with me? That said, I think people are going to have to come to, the, come to the realization that the police don't need a justification anymore. If you're driving a car, you're going to have to provide that breath sample or you're going to end up going to jail. Are we going to see um, uh, police hanging out uh, outside of liquor stores, beer stores, bars? I mean, I guess they could have done that anyway. 
I don't think it's going to fundamentally change that, but I think what's going to change in terms of this two-hour rule, as it's, uh, as it's explained to me by the criminal defense lawyers, is that they'll have more ability to, you know, to uh, demand of people who they believe were driving um, to provide a sample. So when you're at, in the vehicle, there's no question that they, they can ask you for the sample. They don't have to justify it. You have to give it to them. If they were to walk into a bar or knock on your door, they'd have to have some reasonable expectation that you'd been driving. You know, they're not going to be stopping people randomly just to, to ask for breath samples. That's just not going to happen. But the fact that they have the ability to demand a breath sample from somebody who's outside their vehicle, that's something that really concerns people who defend people in these situations because the reality is not everybody is guilty who's accused of a crime and not everybody gets convicted. The thing with drinking and driving is there's such a stigma and there's such a public anger toward those people who do it repeatedly that it's understandable that people would, a high percentage of, of your listeners would say, you know, whatever it takes, do it. The problem is, if you go too far, people feel that the rights are being abridged in other ways. Have you noticed that your viewers were surprised about this? Uh, we were talking about the reaction, obviously that split. What about uh, awareness of this? I mean, I, I think, think they were, co- I think everybody was aware about the ability that they could, they could ask for a breath sample, but certainly not the two-hour issue. Complete surprise. And the, and the lawyers I spoke to uh, starting earlier in the week said this had just been been covered over. It was brought, you know, the reporting that had been done really just didn't detail any of the possible consequences of it. It was, as you said, focused mainly on the fact that they could ask for uh, a, a sample without any sort of justification. So I think people are coming to the realization that this could be a problem. And, you know, it may not be a problem for, for your listeners. It may not be a problem for anybody I know. But the, one of the defense lawyers I spoke to in Vancouver yesterday said, it is going to happen absolutely 100%. People are going to be arrested as a result of these changes to giving the police more rights. And, and these are undoubtedly going to get challenged. But as I said earlier, Challenges take a long time, and there can be a lot of people that are hurt in the meantime. And you wonder if this was the right approach, or maybe just make drinking and driving illegal altogether. I mean, Good point. Do, does that so- Good. It seems that in or you know we're not enforcing law; we're taking away rights. And many people have weighed in with that that point. They say, "Look, it's not it's not expensive enough for the person who's been found guilty." It should be uh, more more difficult for them to get back on the road. It should cost them more. There should be greater deterrence. And I think there's a, a pretty widespread amount of support for that point of view, that if you're convicted, you've been found guilty, you should pay a heavy price so you don't do it again. And many people out there in, in our audience and possibly in yours believe it's too easy to get back behind the wheel after you've been convicted. But this legislation doesn't significantly deal with this this gives police more powers yeah it goes from being a penalty issue to a civil rights issue what about the federal government any reaction from them on this no they spoke pretty pretty frankly about it uh, before um, before Christmas time the law change came into effect in in mid-December and then you had the Christmas break but uh, you know Bill Blair who was the former Toronto chief of police he spoke to this uh, in, in the middle of or the beginning of December, along with the federal justice minister, and said that, you know, they were okay with giving police uh, these kinds of tools to use. And they fully expect that police, having been given the tools, will use the tools, and the end goal is to try to stop people from drinking and driving. 
whether this is going to, you know, one plus one is going to equal two uh, in that is, you know, a matter of, of time will tell, right? But they they fully support what they've done or they wouldn't have passed this law. Uh, we were talking earlier about the, the politics involved in this and how uh, this may be a result of, of cannabis, uh, the legalization of cannabis. But this would apply to cannabis as well, wouldn't it? Be all impaired driving, would it not? No, it doesn't. Actually, it doesn't. It, the, the cannabis bill, as I understand it, the cannabis legislation is a separate beast. This deals with this deals with alcohol. I'm no expert on the other one. I haven't been researching that for the purposes of a story. But this is this is dealing with alcohol. So, and, and so I guess my said, que- I guess my question is, Sean, if if they pulled you over, could they say you have to go back, or we have to give you a blood test or something, thinking that you've you know uh, uh, you've been smoking cannabis and driving? Let's put it this way, Scott. I think the the police officer pulling people over, they're going to have a, a really tough job considering that level of potential intoxication with cannabis and this and the new rules on texting and driving and distracted driving. Yeah, I, really? mean, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be a, a police officer having to deal with new legislation, uh, new problems and concerns. And, and I think that it's going to be a challenge. But I mean, I really, really want to point out as well to, to your listeners that if you do get asked for a breath sample, you have to give it. Yeah. Um, and, and this is one of the things that, that many of the lawyers are telling me. They, they feel a lot of people just don't don't realize this, that they still have the feeling that, you know, if they haven't done anything wrong, that they have a right to expect that the police officer has to be able to justify it. They don't have to be able to justify it, not whether they're at your door or in the car. If you don't do it, you're going to face a you're going to face a penalty. And that is as significant uh, as as being convicted on the other. Yeah, it's like a two thousand dollar fine right there, isn't it? You lose your license. Yeah. There's a ninety day suspension. There's a whole lot of penalty for somebody who's not been convicted but just suspected. And just just simply for refusing to take the test. Absolutely, you can't do it. Where do you think this is going? I mean, well, it's going to be mean, a long. Gonna... T- it's going to be a long time till the first case gets to court. Or it may not be. I mean, it it may not be. I mean. You know, Art, the other day, this was the very early days of this where, you know, here's a case of somebody being pulled over. You know, it's not beyond the pale that somebody would challenge that aspect of it as well. The idea that they shouldn't be forced to provide a breath sample when they've done nothing wrong. You know, that could be challenged as well. But um, I think there will be cases and there will be cases sooner. Um, But, you know, people really have to realize that, you know, if you're driving, the possibility of the police taking some pretty heavy action is it's there and they should they should know about that sean o'shea has been with us consumer reporter for global news make sure you're watching global news tonight at 5 30 and 6 sean great story great reporting thanks for the time much uh, much appreciated thanks very much have a great day you're listening to the scott thompson show podcast on 900 chml we're going to talk about pipelines again, except this one's not the Trans Mountain. This is a different one uh, facing protests from certain Aboriginal chiefs uh, in regard to uh, a federal, uh, they, well, I guess they want more review underway for this. This is to take natural gas uh, to the coast, very similar to the Trans Mountain, which, of course, was taking oil. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP, consumer affairs critic, analyst, GasBuddy.com. He's with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Well, good to be here again, Scott. Thanks for having me. Another pipeline, another day. Uh, more attention seems to have been paid to the Trans Mountain. Where did this come from? Why are we talking about this now? Well, this one uh, was a no-brainer. Uh, it didn't even involve oil. 
natural gas, you know, the kind of stuff that is clean that the rest of the world wants to get. It's all to be exported with 20 out of 20 indigenous groups and elders and hereditary elders along the line, uh, all uh, signing on board, every single one of them. How, let me stop you right one. there. How can we have approval for everyone along the line, and yet we get protests across the country? Yeah, well, that's because of the uh, fanaticism uh, surrounding climate change. I mean, let's be but clearly, about. clearly, uh, the Aboriginal community is not is not uh, uniform on this. Clearly, uh, one has one opinion; one will have another. Yeah, but you can't. No one has a veto, and I'm sorry. Indigenous rights, uh, even by the courts of this country, have determined them to be, uh, you know, uh, in this case, uh, all the conditions, all the criteria, all the engagement, all the uh, permissions were in fact granted to uh, West Coast Gas. And at the end of the day, <clears throat> it doesn't matter. It only takes a couple of miscreants uh, who are well funded by the Tides organization, T-I-D-E-S, look it up. Let me ask this. Um, Let me interrupt there and ask this. Why don't the Aboriginal communities that are all on board from this and going to benefit from this help in the others to understand why this is good for them too? It's uh, a good question. I don't know. But this is the same thing with the uh, Eagle Spirit Pipeline, uh, which would go through uh, and into the same area that would bring clean oil into the uh, region, potentially to be refined and sent overseas. Uh, plenty of uh, support. Trans Mountain had the same thing. Uh, so, you know, what you have here is uh, really the, uh, the 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 thin edge of the wedge uh, and a very small determined minority uh, that is committed to bearing all Canadian resources in the ground. And what this is, is I think for every Canadian out there, anybody who is sane, S-A-N-E, you cannot but uh, say at this point, enough is enough. You're going to destroy your country by bending over backwards to people who are taking the law into their own hands, defying the rule of law. And if there are other people who want to join in on that, well, then just goes to show you uh, what we're being led by. This entire uh, fanatical fringe or phalange of the uh, of, of the of the green movement has gotten carried away to a point where the Canadians and their leadership have, have got to be firm but it does for me in one way it represents something that I'm very happy to see finally Canadians who've been asleep at the switch uh, not understanding what this is all about not paying much attention are starting to say excuse me you know <laughs> is this really what's happening in our country that we've devolved to such a point that the rule of law gets thrown in the garbage even after all the conditions are met. To me, it's a it's a no-brainer. These people are anarchists, and they ought to be treated as such. Is this is this case that they're they're presenting with the coastal gas link, uh, <laughs> natural gas pipeline to the coast? Is it similar to the Trans Mountain case? Like you know, we we understand that the Trans Mountain thing went to court, and then apparently the government do, didn't do something that it was supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. So now the Trudeau government's going back to do that. Is it the same scenario here? Uh, no, this one's been around since 2012, and uh, it has been checked and rechecked and checked again. At the same time, we still see the same problem. Um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, no, no, uh, no allowance, and no one has a veto. No one, no one has to has the right to basically defy the rule of law in this in this country for that reason. So, why is this happening now? Well, I think it's probably left over from uh, what the Tides organization and many other. Uh, foreign-funded environmental groups are doing. They have zero-targeted Canada. They smell blood in light of the fact that we have a weak government in Ottawa. 
uh, and a provincial government in BC, which is totally opposed to all pipelines. But what they didn't bother taking into consideration is, you know, the uh, the Greens and the BC Liberals, uh, BC NDP, want to block only oil pipelines. Uh, they get a pass if it's gasoline, and if it's natural gas, oh my God. Well, there's a $40 billion uh, project, liquid natural gas project in Kitimat, where this pipeline would take the gas. That's going to create thousands of jobs, and it is, and it cannot be considered in any way, shape, or form, uh, you know, contrary to the uh, to the ends and the goals of climate change. It's actually going to sell natural gas in liquefied, uh, compressed form to countries such as uh, take, uh, for instance, uh, China, uh, South Korea, Japan. So there's a huge open market for this, and that's why I think it's critical people really begin to understand uh, that this is gone way too far. That this is replacing. That this is replacing coal in those countries. Well, it's replacing coal. It's replacing uh, bunker oil. It's replacing a number of things. But this is getting this is getting crazy. I mean, I I, I can see where you know we, there's debates left and right as to who gets what consent and finding a, a judge that will come inside with you. There's a court order. The injunction had to be upheld. They waited a year. They told everybody by press release what was going to happen. That is the RCMP. And if you look at the way they dismantled it yesterday, talk about kid gloves. But, you know, at the end of the day, we have people who are committed uh, to uh, stopping, uh, people who want to uh, prevent these things from proceeding, even when all of the requirements, as difficult as they are and as, uh, as, as rigorous as they are, all been met. And the company has been very deferential. But, you know, this is where you fish or cut bait. And uh, I think that's where... Uh, the RCMP did the right thing. They had the court order. And, uh, you know, if there are people out there who want to demonstrate and think that's, that's not the right thing to do and it was not done the right way, fine. I have no difficulty with that, nor should any Canadian. It's when you start to take matters into your own hands, uh, when, you, when you commit violence, when you break into locations, when you push people around, when you threaten them, uh, these people should be locked up. So what, what, does, what is the Prime Minister's take on what happened? I don't know what his take is because, I mean, frankly, we get mixed signals. This is the guy who came in with social license. This is the guy that, uh, you know, wanted to shut three of the four uh, um, pipelines, Northern Gateway, uh, the uh, uh, the Energy East. Uh, and he's certainly done, done you know, a number in terms of not really moving much on Trans Mountain. Uh, but, you know, I think for... So we for, bought for, Trans Mountain and then he can't get that built. So what's going to happen here? He what doesn't will- want it built. I mean, he doesn't so will this will this natural gas pipeline will this project be finished? Oh, it better be. I mean, if you can't build a, a, a single pipeline in this country, it comes back to the many discussions that you and I have had, and that's over the idea that no pipeline will be allowed in this country. And if that's the case, is it any wonder that Shell, Sarnia, and uh, Husky uh, in uh, Prince George is is packing up? They want to get out. Everyone wants to get out of Canada, and with them, billions of dollars in investments. And as I said many times, Scott. The billions of dollars that they're investing uh, has a real impact on our social programs, on our bottom line, on our, our, our ability to attract investment. I see that the Bank of Canada yesterday finally had to throw in the towel. The disinvestment in our energy sector has led them for the first time to say, hey, this wouldn't be a bright time to try to push up interest rates. Yeah. Even though we have, uh, we have serious reasons and cause to do so, we are absolutely alarmed about what's happening. It is the collapse of your economy right in front of you. And it's not because of you know, world affairs. Quite to the contrary, the world wants more Canadian natural gas and oil. Uh, it's miscreants paid by uh, organizations outside of Canada who are blocking Canadian oil and natural gas now uh, to the detriment of the country. So where is this coastal gas link uh, project now? 
up in the air. Uh, I mean, they will be able to proceed with it, but uh, I suspect that there will be people up there uh, throwing themselves in front of uh, construction. Uh, they will do their best, their level best at trying to block this. This will become a code set among the extreme fringe of the green movement in this country. So after um, we're seeing this, and since this is going to happen anyway with this project that has to go through, uh, will this set the stage for the Trans Mountain? Just more of the same. Uh, well, I think, no, it could be settled for Trans Mountain. In one way, it's going to be good because it shows for reasonable, sane people uh, just how uh, this matter, this issue of uh, of blocking uh, pipelines has become. And that is certainly something that uh, most level-headed people would accept as being uh, having gone way too far. This, I think, is the straw that uh, broken the camel's back. And I think Canadians are going to start to realize there will be an awakening and a major pushback to those who are simply saying, no, we, you have to have unanimity when it comes to these things. So in other words, all 36.5 million Canadians have to agree to this. If even one says no, then it, it, gets, it gets stopped. Look, society doesn't work that way. A country cannot function that way. And if you're going to destroy the resources that are really at the bedrock of our economic uh, well-being and our cultural well-being and the, the, uh, the, the stability of our federation, then we're talking about a bigger problem. And I think these, uh, the handful of miscreants involved in this kind of stuff let them blow as much uh, air as they want. The reality is, at the end of the day, they have to abide by the rule of law. And the fact is, this country, more than any producing natural gas or, for that matter, oil-producing nation, has done more to uh, acquiesce and to mollify and appease than any other nation out there. And I think Canadians are starting to realize there's a major cost to appeasement. At the end of the day, you still wind up with uh, a handful of people who are committed to doing untold economic damage to the country. Uh, the Prime Minister out west now, uh, actually in a press conference right now, will this, will this, how will he react to this? I mean, will this make or break him, and as you said, make him not only address this, but the Trans Mountain? Well, I think he's got a real problem on his hands, and much of his own, of his own making. And he's now, he can't, he doesn't have enough time to wait till the October election to show more decisiveness. Uh, he's basically been MIA uh, in all of this. Um, and, and sort of hope that he could sort of, you know, rag the puck, wait for the courts to make a decision. We've come to the end of the line here, and I think his finance department, uh, those who are looking on the outside in, are saying that we have reached a tipping point in Canada where uh, the damage that has been done to our reputation and the integrity of our decision-making process to give approvals for pipelines is now uh, in, in absolute ruins. And uh, anybody who thinks that's not the case only has to look at the fact that the uh, 140, 150,000 people who've lost their jobs out west, the drop in the price of oil, uh, the fact the federal government is incurring massive debts, $75 billion added to the national debt at a time when there is a greater expectation about our ability to pay for our services while the world goes into an economic slowdown. This is not good. And uh, anybody who tries to couch it any other way or try to provide, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, mealy-mouthed words about what's happened uh, is going to have to really take it with the Prime Minister and say, this uh, this, this is on you. You uh, created the condition in which you were going to be all things to all people and give everybody a social license. They're exercising that license. There is no longer the ability to uh, to function in many respects uh, economically. We have talked about coal coming out of Vancouver before. Yeah. 
Um, why is this not attracting more attention? And just to, to, to you know, uh, uh, to tell everyone, Vancouver has the largest coal port in North America, North America. from what I understand. So this That's is right. bigger. This is bigger than what comes out of the central United States where yep. Donald Trump's always, you know, uh, always defending their coal production down there. This is bigger than that. It's the biggest port in North America yep. that sells coal to China. Why are we stopping pipelines from going through that sell much cleaner energy, yet nobody is saying anything about coal? Why are these protests not happening at coal ports? Uh, And why is that not being stopped from going to China as opposed to this? Is it because that industry is already established? Inconvenient truth. (laughs) Look, you you have in this country uh, an orthodoxy, an ideal that has been propagated that there's only one way ahead and that one way should be no fossil fuels. It is being promoted by the extreme left of the uh, NDP known as the Leap Manifesto. Yeah. Uh, and their whole point is to dumb down the bad things and focus on the real bad players and actors and all this. And if we don't get what we want, then we're going to use every tool we have at our at our disposal. And of course, when you have a government that's conflicted, like the federal liberals are with their energy minister, uh, on the one hand, saying we have to do more to, you know, to meet our climate change goals and recognizing that all of our major partners, China, the United States, Japan, have no <laughs> carbon taxes imposed on themselves. Uh, you have a real significant problem in terms of the messaging because no one knows where the hell Canada stands. And I think that's unfortunate, uh, but we don't speak with one voice. We're trying to be mealy mouth. We're trying to be all things to all people. Yeah. And as a result, we're absolutely irrelevant. Uh, more importantly, we're telling the world that, uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll do the, all these things on climate change, but uh, don't forget, we are still the largest exporters uh, in North America of, of coal. And so, you know, here's an attempt to try to get natural gas as opposed to the coal as an export, and uh, it's being blocked. So there's a lot of, uh, um, you know, these things don't happen by accident, and there are very large groups uh, organizationally on the side of the green um, funders who have the desire to really uh, make an example of Canada, and they're being extremely successful. Not only do do they have the ability to take a small group of people who are out, uh, acting clearly outside of the law and magnify this, they also have a lot of media able to get in there before the, uh, the, uh, the site was deconstructed. Uh, it's very serious, and I, I suspect that uh, as part of the agenda, Canada has willfully allowed itself, through its prime minister, to become a, really a scapegoat, uh, a testing ground, a petri dish for environmentalists to kill the energy and fossil fuel sector. Good luck with that, because everything we have is improved by the use, uh, the responsible use of uh, fossil fuels. But they want to live in a world of magic and make-believe, and you and I are the guinea pigs. And, you know, it seems that, you know, for, for the Prime Minister, this all comes back to the Aboriginal community. But then, again, what I have a hard time with is, and this was the same with the Trans Mountain, those affected along the route, those Aboriginal communities are all on board. So no, why no, is it if it comes through your, your, your area, you're on board, but if you live somewhere else, you're not? This gives a, a, an opportunity to our Indigenous people to be able to get the skills, get the trades, get the investments to improve on the lives and, and work within their communities and to ensure that future generations uh, have the kind of resource development with their absolute consent and cooperation. But again, you only, it only takes a couple of, uh, uh, you know, uh, miscreants to, uh, to tip the scales. And 
I'm sure there are people out there right now um, who are trying to devise ways to mealy mouth and to find a way around this. But, you know, in this case, there is no there is no other alternative unless you are a complete fanatic and you believe that we can all live in the native state of nature, eating acorns, not having any fires and wearing animal skins. Unless you truly believe that that's where we ought to be going, uh, at the end of all of this, you can't but demand of your federal government that they get off their collective duff. And when this kind of thing happens, no more, you know, being cute and nice and polite. The negotiations have taken place. They're hurting the very people who've been asking for our native people, our indigenous people, who've and First Nations who've said we need these things to happen. They are the right thing to do. Uh, again, um, I'm going to have to say it, democracy has to uh, reign, and of course, the interests of the many. And it's more than utilitarianism. It's the interests of the many come way before the selfishness of a handful of people who've been obviously bought off by very large environmental organizations. Uh, it's funny. Many have asked whether this is going... I remember asking you way back when, if the Trans Mountain pipeline, yep. when the election was still over a year away, if this was going to be an election issue. The Prime Minister is making this an election issue, isn't he? Oh, it's he? an issue. Trust me, it's an issue. And I warned my federal, federal colleagues, I won't mention them, that not to play around with energy. Uh, you're going to divide the nation. That could be the one outcome. You're going to create economic chaos. That could be another. You're also going to make yourself, yourself as a government look weak and indecisive. Uh, again, you know, this may have been something that they, they could have suppressed because they were pushing other agendas, pushing other issues. I don't know, maybe legalizing marijuana take, took precedence over the fact that no one has the ability now to put bread on the table to, uh, to make ends meet. And you have a third of the country that's really ticked off with the other third of the country. You've created chaos where there was once absolute, uh, you know, peace in the, in the land for the first time in generations. Our, our econ- economic outlook was strong. Uh, our federation was strong. And people look forward to the future confidently. I can tell you right now that is not the case, and it really pains me. As a guy who served for 37 years in the Liberal Party, as a fellow who spent half of that as a member of Parliament, part of that even as a, as, as a Privy Councillor, I, I cannot believe in what they have done in such a short time to undermine the country. And it's, I'd like to think it's willful. I think it's just incompetence. He certainly, you know, you use the term weak. Uh, many used to say before, not experienced, but I, I think weak might replace that. You, you look at the situation with China, you know, uh, welcoming everybody, then not really having any sort of policy. I, I mean, he, he just, he seems to ride the fence and just not make the call. I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I work for great leaders. I work for his father. <laughs> you, may or, yeah. you may have liked or disliked him, and yes, he created economic chaos and upheaval with 21%, 22% interest rates, which I felt personally. My dad was a home builder. Um, but, you know, you knew where they were coming from, and there was no equivocation. I don't know what the Prime Minister stands for, and that, more importantly, I'm not sure that he has the intestinal fortitude to stand up to those who are committed to undermining Canada by basically making Canada, uh, you know, a... Uh, a petri dish by which you can experiment and how to destroy an industry, and it just can't be done because, logically speaking, uh, you know there are there's a way of approaching this. This is not the Canadian way. The Canadian way has always been to find a way out, compromise, but at the end of the day, move on. Yeah, we're not moving on. Instead, we are taking major steps backwards, and it's that context that has me concerned uh, as a fuel analyst because I realize the price of fuel, for instance, is 14 cents a liter higher than it should be. I realize that the cost of energy in this country continues to rise because it's being subject to the experimentation of the same groups of people who deliver to you the Ontario Hydro Green Plan. Uh, There is a concern that I think is now legitimately coming across Canada 
never mind who's going to speak for Canada. It's that those who are speaking for Canada are too incompetent to realize the problem of their own making. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic, analyst, GasBuddy.com. Dan, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Good talking again, Scott. Cheers. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Shut down talks, shut down once again. Uh, Donald Trump apparently walking out of a, nego- a negotiation meeting with the Democrats. Uh, in a tweet, he said, I said bye-bye. The government is at the 20th day of its shutdown. To talk more about all of this, Molly Reynolds is with us, senior fellow here in uh, senior fellow in governance studies, Brookings Institute out of Washington, and is with us now. Molly, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good to be here. How is this resonating with Americans? Uh, the border, uh, the border wall, the security border security issue, whatever way you want to look at this, is this a big enough issue to be shutting down the government for Americans? So the polling on uh, an actual physical uh, barrier along the southwestern border suggests that it's really not very popular among uh, Americans broadly. There are certain Certainly some folks in uh, President Trump's political base on the right end of the uh, Republican Party with whom this idea is popular, but more broadly, it's simply not a terribly popular idea um, among the broader public, uh, which I think does suggest that it's um, you know, potentially not worth shutting the government down over in the eyes of many voters. Um, polling data also suggests that voters um, largely blame President Trump for the shutdown and not um, congressional Democrats or Republicans. And so at this point, um, that's where we are. Uh, do Americans think the, that he has taken this too far? And to add to that, you were saying that uh, Americans believe that this is the president's fault. We all remember that meeting in the Oval Office with uh, Schumer and Pelosi and him saying he was going to take credit for it. So I guess perhaps is that some of the reason? Uh, I mean, I think that's certainly part of it. Um, I think he has made, the president has made very clear to the public that the reason that in his mind that we have this um, shutdown is because uh, Democrats are unwilling to uh, uh, expend money to build that physical barrier along the southwestern border. Uh, And so, you know, I I do think that voters are starting to see that messaging and, and realize that, you know, this is largely why we are where we are. Has Donald Trump painted himself into a corner here? So um, I think if he's not there already, um, he's certainly getting there. You know, usually to get out of these kinds of protracted stalemates in Congress, we have to think that each side has to, um, you know, be able to give something up to get the overall compromise. But up till now, um, President Trump has repeatedly said um, dating back to the week before Christmas, that he's not willing to um, fund the rest of the government unless Democrats um, give uh, him some money for this border wall. And Democrats have absolutely no political incentive to do so. Uh, And so that that, uh, brings us either to Trump in a corner or getting close to that point. Uh, we've certainly heard this story go from being a concrete wall that the that Mexico will pay for to you know a steel wall or some sort of modified version, and that Mexico is paying for indirectly through uh, the new NAFTA deal. Uh, that being said, um, what about all of those uh, uh, states along the border? How are they feeling? How are those governors feeling? Where are they on this issue? The, the, the people that are at ground zero. I understand the president's in Texas today. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly if you look at um, members of 
um, Congress from some of those states, even Republicans, um, are not enthusiastic about um, the idea of a physical barrier along the southwestern border. You know, you've also started to see some reporting um, about involving um, individual landowners whose land would need to be um, likely seized through eminent domain to build a physical border a barrier if one was to be constructed. And again, this just really isn't a terribly popular idea um, among a really wide range of stakeholders um, outside of uh, the White House itself. Uh, the Republicans and Mitch McConnell and the Democrats came to a deal hoping the president would sign this on border security and, and revamping all of it, but not the wall. Uh, then, of course, the president decided not to take uh, that advice and, and, and go ahead and, and we are where, where, where we are. Um, how does he sell this as a win moving forward if it appears that the wall's not going to happen? Again, we, we've been talking about compromises and going from concrete to steel and so on and so forth. Uh, how does he still sell this as a win? I mean, I think on one level, much of what he's trying to portray here is just that he's willing to fight for the issue, that he's willing to really go to the mat on this question of um, a border wall specifically. And, you know, you've heard a number of people say that, you know, the wall is a, a really important symbolic thing, even if it doesn't ever actually get built. And I think in large part, that's where we are and that it's that he needs to be able or he feels like he needs to be able to show his base political supporters, that he's willing to fight for this very big symbolic priority, even if we don't actually get to the point where a, uh, all of the southwestern border is um, covered by a physical border, a physical barrier. Is this more a war of terminology than it is about border security? Because it appears both, both sides want border security. Both realize there's an issue that has to be dealt with. It's just how to do it. I mean, there's certainly um, a semantic part of this overall argument and a symbolic part of the argument about, you know, what constitutes a wall. So you've heard Trump both say it has to be a wall, it has to be concrete, and now has moved to this idea of steel slats or a fence. And so there's definitely, um, there's definitely a semantic component to it. And that's true in so many political fights. Um, that's not unique to this particular um, this regular battle between um, Republicans and Democrats. What do Democrats need to do here? I mean, is it just a case of, of holding the line? I mean, Donald Trump has pretty much painted this picture. Do they just sit back and wait for the paint to dry now? I mean, as you mentioned, it appears Americans, uh, mo- most Americans are viewing that it's Donald Trump that, that got you where you are. Uh, what, how does the Democrats, I, I mean, are they just going to sit back and let this all unfold? So I think at least for the moment, that's what they're likely to do. Um, I think, you know, there are some um, Democrats in Congress, particularly some um, Democratic freshmen from districts that are um, uh, more competitive who might feel a little bit nervous about that strategy. So a lot of it will just be kind of convincing those folks that um, it's smart to hold the line against Trump on this unpopular proposal and really For Democrats, I think it'll be key to emphasize the messaging around the negative effects of the government shutdown and talk more about that, talk more about the 800,000 federal workers who, um, starting tomorrow, won't be receiving paychecks um, because of the shutdown, the hundreds of thousands of federal contractors who are going without pay, and the real damaging effects on the American economy of um, that of the shutdown uh, beyond just the issue of the wall. So will the Democrats feel that they have to bend just to stop the pain, or will they let Donald Trump feel that heat? 
I think um, I think Democrats hope is that um, the, the president will feel like he needs to back down um, in part because I think Democrats are hoping that um, Republicans start to come out um, in favor of reopening the government, even in the absence of an agreement on um, the wall specifically. You know, you've heard a couple of Republicans in both the House and the Senate start to um, take that position. Um, some prominent senators from states uh, where they are up in 2020, like Cory Gardner of um, Colorado and Susan Collins of Maine. We've seen a handful of House Republicans vote with the Democrats um, in the House as they started to take votes on um, bills to reopen the government. So I think Democrats' plan is just to um, hope that the political pressure on Republicans from the negative consequences of the shutdown really um, reshapes the political calculus here. Whether they're right and how long that would take before it would go into effect, I think, is a real open question. Uh, as we mentioned before, uh, the Dems and the Republicans already had a deal that uh, that uh, Mitch McConnell was going to take to the president. Uh, then, of course, uh, there was chatter about what was said on Fox and so on and so forth. He decided he decided the Trump or uh, Donald Trump decided to back away from that. In the end, do you think, Molly, that they will end up taking this old deal or some modified form of it? I mean, is that not a starting point? So I think it it could well be a starting point. And I think if you brought that bill back to um, both the House and the Senate, um, it would be likely to pass because folks really don't want to keep large parts of the government shut down. The real challenge is that um, it can be, for all of President Trump's sort of commitment to the wall as a a symbol, he's a a difficult negotiating partner because um, he changes his mind a lot. And so uh, and that's what happened right before Christmas in terms of the Senate voting to, to pass that bill. And then within 24 hours, um, Trump saying he wouldn't sign it. And that's what got us to the point where we are today. And so I do think that um, that could be a, a starting point um, to, to reopen the government. But we'll just have to see. How will Donald Trump play that? How will he sell that? Because in a sense, is that not him accepting a loss? Something he turned down earlier, created all this fuss about, shut down the government, and then he goes back and signs the old deal anyway. Or right, will, he, that, will he find some little wee new piece of it to say, well, they gave us this, so now it's worth it? Um, that's certainly possible. I mean, I think when we think about any kind of big deal um, on a politically tricky issue that Congress and the president are trying to work out, we always need to be looking for ways for all the sides to save some face. And so if there is a way um, in that for um, for President Trump to save some face, I think he'd certainly be looking for it. Um, I think this is part of why some folks thought he might or think he still might try and declare a national emergency to start building the wall from existing resources, um, because that would, again, give him the ability to claim credit for having done something, even if that move is ultimately um, stopped by the courts. Obviously, um, declaring a uh, national emergency about something that's not actually a crisis um, is not a great uh, step in uh, kind of the, the devolution of a lot of our political norms in the United States. But it's the underlying dynamic in which I think we need to be looking for ways that President Trump might um, find some way to save face to get um, out of this uh, current standoff is important. Considering where we are now, and, and, the, and, and the president mentioning just yesterday that he's not ruling out um, declaring it a, a national security issue, do you think he will go down that road considering people are getting a little concerned he might be losing a little ground here? 
Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, on one hand, I think if he was likely to do it, um, he would have done it um, uh, earlier this week when he had his nationally televised address. You know, that would have been a time when he had quite a lot of attention being paid to him. He was on national television. He obviously didn't do it then. But again, because um, he's a political actor who's pretty frequently changing his mind and changing strategy midstream, it's really hard to predict what his next move is likely to be. Uh, we we know what happened in the first half of this tenure, obviously losing power in the second half with the House going to the Democrats. Is this just an example of what the next couple of years are going to be like? So it certainly um, is an important lesson for President Trump, I think, about what happens under divided government. You know, for uh, uh, while I think President Trump and some of the folks in the White House thought maybe his leverage would increase um, when Democrats took control of the House, it's clear that that's not happened. And so I think this is an important lesson in terms of what, who has the power in the House now and uh, what he'll have to deal with and contend with over the next two years. I uh, can't let you go, Molly, without asking you about the TV address. Your thoughts on how that went over? Obviously, uh, his first State of the Union address, uh, first time he's decided to use that forum instead of the, the traditional tweet, <laughs> as he puts it. Um, uh, reaction from the American people on this State of the Union address? So uh, the televised address earlier this week um, from the Oval Office, um, obviously it's something we see presidents do from time to time. Um, I think one major takeaway from that particular um, speech is that that kind of speech is not where the president's um, rhetorical strengths lie and that sort of scripted um, uh, address without an audience. Um, the extent that we think part of his um, political success comes from his public persona, it does not come through strongly in that sort of um, environment. But at the end of the day, um, we didn't learn really anything new from either that speech or the Democratic response given by Speaker Pelosi and Minority Leader Schumer. So in a lot of ways, it didn't really move the needle. Um, and I think by and large, you know, most Americans did not watch that. Um, it was a relatively short address, um, that sort of thing. Why now on TV instead of a tweet? So I think um, in part because um, he, the president is trying to sort of, you know, lend some of the, the gravity of the um, Oval Office to this issue. The idea that, you know, if he is trying to portray this as a crisis, um, do so in um, a serious way in a, uh, or in a way that he sees as serious, um, uh, use a medium that other presidents have used before in times of actual crisis, as opposed to the kind of fabricated crisis that we're dealing with right now. And so um, I think that's largely why he chose to go down that road for this part- in this particular um, instance. Uh, the president campaigned before uh, the election on draining the swamp, uh, the congestion, nothing getting done. Uh, you know, I remember uh, Paul Ryan reading Grain, Eggs, and Ham. Uh, it seems that the, the, the government's more at a standstill now than it was prior. Is that accurate? So I think one of the, one of the I mean, we've seen um, significant gridlock uh, between Congress and the president throughout much of the past, um, you know, 10 to 20 years in the United States, particularly under periods of divided government like we have right now. One of the big things that's a little bit different about where we are at this moment is that um, we've never had a situation where uh, a government shutdown has bled over from a Congress of um, control by one party to a Congress controlled by the other party. So 
usually Mm. at the beginning of a new Congress, when a new party comes into power, like we have in the House, we'd see a lot of efforts by the new majority party to do a lot of new legislating and that sort of thing. And we may well still see that um, with Democrats in the House. But right now, the shutdown that's a holdover from last year is really sucking up a lot of the oxygen in the room in Washington. Uh, Donald Trump in Texas today along the southern border, we understand. Will this uh, will this move the meter at all? So unless um, President Trump in that speech, um, in that appearance, takes a wildly different position than he's taken so far, I don't really think we're going to um, see a big uh, change in the underlying circumstances. I think that we really need to see um, one or more of the key actors here um, really start to um, evolve in their position um, and be uh, uh, less dug in where they are right now. And I am... Uh, I don't think that that's likely to happen um, as part of that appearance um, in Texas today. Uh, Do you think that will be his his whatever he does in Texas today as far as a press conference uh, or addressing the media will be the opposite, the exact opposite of what we saw on TV the other night? So it'll certainly be different. Um, It'll be a use of a medium that's, I think, more comfortable to Trump than that Oval Office address was. Um, We will obviously have to see what he says. I expect it to be much of the same rhetoric he's used that involves, um, you know, a lot of um, uh, uh, false statements about the state of how things are actually along the southern border. Um, But it will certainly feel differently than that um, address in the Oval Office did earlier this week. Uh, Are you surprised where you are, Molly? So um, uh, I'll admit that I didn't think the government was going to shut down in the first place. I thought um, the House and Senate um, and the president were going to reach some sort of deal before um, Christmas to keep the government open. But now that we are where we are, um, I'm not terribly surprised at kind of how dug in the respective parties are on their positions. Um, But I do think someone's going to have to start to change their mind at some point if we're going to get the government reopened. Molly Reynolds has been with us, Senior Fellow, Governance Studies, Brookings Institute out of Washington. Molly, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Uh, Thanks for having me. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.